So we're going to look at now at Romans chapter 9, verse 30, uh, down to 10, verse 4. Romans 9, verse 30. And uh, before we do that, again, let's, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we approach your words with, with reverence and awe, thanking you for it. We pray once again that by your Spirit you would come and help us to understand it. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained, have not, have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching, uh, reaching that law. Why? Because... The, Sorry, I need to read that again. I've read that wrong. (laughs) As sometimes happens. So let me start again. I read that as a question. It's not a question. It's a statement. (laughs) Verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if they were, it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we've been working our way through uh, chapter 9 on Sunday afternoons, Um, and this chapter has been leading us through some big questions um, about how God works out his salvation, Uh, big questions for some of us. Uh, I think uh, Paul is fairly straightforward, but the reason it's big for us, I think, is sometimes emotionally we find it difficult to accept that God is sovereign over salvation. Um, and, uh, but you, we, we mustn't forget that uh, Paul is actually a reason, has a reason for addressing these kinds of questions because he writes as a Jew uh, converted to Christianity, but he remains a Jew and he has a, a kinship uh, with his uh, fellow Jews. He's, uh, he thinks a lot about his cousins, his brothers and sisters as uh, his, his kinsmen, if you like. And he uses that term uh, early on uh, in the chapter, in verse 3, my kinsman. Um, So he has this deep concern for his fellow ethnic Jews because they have been devoutly uh, following, seeking to follow the ways of God through the laws that he gave. 
Yet if Paul is right, and he says this, that people can only be right uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, then so many of those Jews have missed the salvation that is offered to them in all the, bit, all the things that they have, in the scriptures they have, in the covenants that they are aware of, uh, in, the, uh, in all the blessings that they've received th- through the centuries. They've actually missed the key thing, which is Jesus Christ. Stepping back a little bit um, from Paul for a moment, we can, and looking at this big picture, what, what is it that God is doing? After all, God, Israel has had so many privileges um, from the hand of God. Has, the, has, the, has God's promises, have God's promises failed in some way? Uh, that's the kind of question that Paul has been uh, addressing. And Paul's answer is to show that, uh, no, the promise hasn't failed. God's promises don't fail. Uh, when he promises something, he makes it happen. Uh, Rather, it's actually working out just as he planned. God planned it and he knows what he's doing and everything happens as he intends. And the answer to the question uh, of of the the Israel question is, well, not all of Israel are Israel. Remember back in verse uh, verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But instead, a remnant of Israel shall be saved. Uh, And Gentiles as well shall be saved. Uh, The nations will be gathered in. And this is how God works out all his his promises. Working his sovereign power in history to bring about the completion of his purposes. Now all of that may may raise questions for us. But we, we must be aware that we do not seek to go beyond what he has revealed to us. Uh, let, let's uh, let God be God. God knows what he's doing. And we may not understand it all, and we may even have questions about it. But we need to let God be God. Uh, you know, Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Uh, and we should be this, have the same attitude. Don't, don't answer back to God. Let God be God. Trust him in the midst of it. And so we have this great picture of God working out his promises and purposes uh, as he has planned to save his people. Uh, none of that means, of course, that uh, human beings are, are like puppets, unwillingly made to do things they would rather not. Uh, Nobody comes unwillingly into the kingdom of God and nobody stays unwillingly out of the kingdom of God. If you want to come to Jesus and be saved, you can come to Jesus and be saved. And if you don't want to come to Jesus and and not be saved, then of course you're not going to be saved. (laughs) It's uh, very simple. Nobody does anything they don't want to do. So nobody's, uh, nobody's a puppet in all of this. God knows what he's doing. And in his mysterious way, he's working out his plans perfectly. Um, a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, we were looking at uh, God's covenant. And of course, it's God's covenant that guarantees uh, man's moral agency. Uh, that God knows exactly what he's doing. But at the same time, God guarantees man's moral agency, his freedom and liberty of will. 
So he never feels, human beings never feel they're doing something they don't want to do under God. They're always doing what they want to do. And it's in the midst of all of that that God is able to work out his sovereign purposes. Uh, It's a glorious thing. Uh, God, uh, those whom God does not save are, are also those who willingly reject God and rebel against him following their desires and their passions. And those whom God does save, they exercise faith uh, in Christ and find that they have new desires to follow after Christ. And this is, this is what God plants in the, in the heart. And, so, uh, and that's because God, has, you know, God is able to open the eyes uh, and to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and receive that new life as they are joined together with Jesus Christ. They're united by faith. So that experience of faith that you have, that's evidence that by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come and united you to Jesus. A genuine living faith is evidence that you are united to Jesus Christ. And that that bond of faith that can never be broken... If it's genuine faith, it can never be broken. If it's God-given faith, it can never be broken. Jesus will save you and is saving you and has saved you. So at this point, Paul comes um, from the, the heights of God's overarching purposes of God back down to, uh, to ground level to speak about his personal experience, uh, about the personal experience of anyone who would seek after salvation. And this, his essential point in this passage, as it has been all through the letter, is that the righteousness that we need can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the central point of the gospel. And the central point of Paul's letter, that the righteousness that we need can only be found through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, so our first point this evening is that righteousness comes, to, comes by faith and not by works. Faith and not by works. Um, this is something that, of course, Paul has been saying all through the letter. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 17, uh, very important verse. For in, in the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, and that idea of the righteousness of God has, comes by faith to people. Uh, or Romans uh, chapter 3 verse 21. But now, after telling the, the bad news of the condition of human beings... He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then verse 28 of chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so he picks that idea up and he repeats it here. um, That... uh, This righteousness comes from God. And Paul has been at pains, if you've been following Paul in the letter to the Romans, to show that it's always been by faith, even in the Old Testament. So in chapter 4, he speaks about Abraham uh, believing God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Uh, it's kind of a strange thing to read, perhaps, in the middle of that, uh, the story uh, of God's covenant blessings coming to Abraham. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And you, you know his sin. You know that Abraham is a sinner. He's done a lot of sinful things up to that point. But uh, it's still true that uh, as he has faith in God and his promises, it's counted to him as righteousness. So he gets God's righteousness, you see. Uh, and it's not his works, it's not his obedience that actually gets him that righteousness. And so this, this, always, this teaches us that as a person trusts in God and his gospel, that he or she can be counted as righteous before God, even if that person has lived a terrible life and committed many sins in the past. No matter what you've done, you can come to Jesus Repent of your sins. You can't undo them, but you can repent of them. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in the work that he's done for you. That he has come as the propitiatory sacrifice to die and bear the penalty for your sins. And so whatever you've done, you can come to Jesus and have a righteousness from him. And you can be counted by God as righteous. It's glorious, isn't it? Such a wonderful gospel. Uh, Fanny Crosby, the, the hymn writer, of the 19th century, uh, put it in our, in this, in our hymn, uh, To God Be the Glory. She says, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him, then you get a pardon from all your sins and you're counted as righteous. It's a glorious thing, the gospel. And I hope all of us here this evening have found that great truth. Have you? Have you found that truth? Glorious truth? Do you believe that if you trust Jesus Christ, all your past sins can be forgiven? And all your future sins can be forgiven? And that with Christ you may stand before God as your Father and be in a state of grace? full of privilege, full of blessing. This is what the gospel offers to us. It's a great message of the gospel. Sadly, it's a message that the people of Israel largely rejected in spite of all the blessings that they had. Uh, They had all the covenants. They had all the promises of God. They had the laws. They had all the pictures, the, the sign language, if you like, of the Old Testament pointing forward to the glories of the gospel. All the symbolism and typology and all the rest of it that point forward to this great saving work, that point to Christ. Yet they rejected all of it. And the, the, you know, the paradox of this is that the people of Israel, especially at the return from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah, turned all those privileges in which they could have rested into a religion of works and law-keeping with the express purpose of building for themselves a righteousness that is their own. Let's not believe that when you come to Jesus in the first century that the religion of the Pharisees is Old Testament religion. It is far removed from Old Testament religion. They have distorted it and twisted it 
They've allowed themselves to, to create a system of principles and practices while at the same time their hearts are still hypocritical. They are rejecting God. But they think because they're doing all these things that somehow God should receive them. The Pharisees do not have the religion. That was a mis- I used to think that when I was a young Christian. I couldn't understand. Was, you know, and I used to think therefore the Old Testament was was bad religion and the New Testament was good religion. But then I understood that Pharisees have misunderstood the Old Testament. And they just live and perpetuate their hypocrisy. But it's a dreadful religion. To be seeking to be good and righteous and an upright person in the forlorn hope that somehow you can be counted as righteous by virtue of your, your own abilities. But you can't do it. Yet tragically, so many people are just trying to do just that. To live a good life in the hope that they have something that weighs well with God. You know, you need a righteousness from somewhere else. You need somebody else to give you a righteousness. A righteousness that means that you can be counted as righteous before God. So, is righteousness not by works? But Paul leads on to the next thing, to a stumbling block, the central stumbling block that they missed, these Jews. Because, of course, in working hard as they do, and and they were no doubt devout in what they were seeking to do, and trying to live by the commands that they had uh, seen in the Bible and tried to develop, they actually missed the key thing. And Paul draws their attention to this key thing in verse 33, where he says, As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a, a composite quotation from two places in Isaiah. Who we just read earlier. Um, Isaiah was writing several hundred years before Christ. And in Isaiah 28, verse 16, he says, um, God says, I am, I am laying in Zion a stone. I am laying in Zion a stone. And that's a wonderful picture that uh, God was giving to the people of Israel of how he is going to build a great city. And Zion is the name for the hill upon which the city is built at Jerusalem. And... Uh, but, it's, but Zion is much more than just a place. It's, a, it's an idea. It's an idea of the glory of the people of God living under God. And dwelling with God forever. And the key to this great city is the, is the precious cornerstone. The cornerstone of the whole building. Okay, so we understand that. So far, so good. Then the next part of the verse uh, is, uh, in verse 33, uh, is from a different part of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. It's a stone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And here's our picture now of tragedy. The very thing that is key and precious for the ultimate salvation of God's people 
And the ultimate idea of, of Zion and glory and dwelling with God forever is the very thing over which people stumble and fall. And it's amazing that something so key and so central as far as God is concerned becomes the very thing that people themselves find problematic or even offensive. And of course it's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the, the rock of stumbling. That's actually how Peter uses the, the idea of the, the stone in 1 Peter 2, 4 onwards. Because Peter, what Peter is doing there is he's encouraging Christians to, to think of themselves as being part of this great building that God is building. With Jesus Christ as the foundation stone. See, Zion, Jerusalem, is actually typological. It points to the church, the glorious people of God, and the thing that God is building. That's the real thing that God is building. And Paul has this in mind here, I think, uh, as he closes with uh, these words, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. And it highlights for us that the key and central thing in all the revelation of the Old Testament and the way of salvation was this person who is described as the stone. He becomes a, you know, if you trust in Jesus, he becomes a, a great rock upon which you build. Or he becomes, if you don't believe in him, becomes a rock of stumbling and falling over, a place of offense. And it's that very thing that Israel, by the time of Jesus and Paul, had simply missed. And were offended by Jesus and offended by the apostles and the early church. And they had rejected the Jesus that they pre- the early church preached. And they simply found the, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the, stumb- as a, the foundation stone. Uh, just plain offensive. They rejected it. And friends, I, I rather suspect that when you set your heart on a way of life uh, that seeks to be acceptable to God through my goodness, you know, I basically have a high view of my moral ability, uh, my, my uh, uh, qualifications, then the message of faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone becomes an offense. Uh, I think you, many of you will know people like this. Where you, you miss the key thing. You miss that Jesus is the center. And you still think that you know, when the time comes to die, what will count with God is how I've lived my life. And whether I've been good enough. And if you've gone through your life thinking that way, then of course Jesus is going to be offensive to you. Because you start saying things like, what about all my good works? What about my hard good works? Are they not worth anything? Well, Isaiah, in another place, also communicated to the Israelites that your, your good works are like filthy rags. Every good work that we do, which is not of faith, is like a filthy rag. 
It's always tainted by some sin, some, some self-interested sin. You know, when people do good works, often it's for themselves, it's for their own reputation or their own uh, advancement or something. And not for, for the glory of God or for Jesus Christ. So your good works are like filthy rags. And there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, this is what people are like uh, today. People today reject that very same gospel. And I, I, you know, I've, I've told these stories before, but I've, you know, I've met many people in Solihull who are church-going people and, uh, but don't seem to know what to make of Jesus Christ. They don't know how he fits in. Except possibly that he's a, an example for us to follow. Just a moral, you know, embodied set of moral principles that we should try to emulate. You see how moralism starts creeping in? If I can just be a bit more, you know, and everybody thinks they're a bit like Jesus. Don't we? We think we're good. So, if I can just be a bit like Jesus, then surely God will accept that. But such people miss the central issue with Jesus. That he necessarily had to be a sinless man. Jesus had to be a sinless man. To come and be a substitute. To die a death for grubby sinners like you and me. And then be raised to life. So that we could be justified. So that we could be declared to be righteous before God. Not on our merits, but on his merits. That Jesus would cover all our sins. And give us a righteousness that we can't work up ourselves. And the the sum total that we add to our salvation is simply the sin that makes it necessary. Have you ever thought about that? All you add to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary? People reject this, the Savior all the time. We see explicit rejection. Things like a denial of the person of Jesus. Even a denial that he existed. Or that he died. Or that his death, even if you accept that he did die, that whether it means anything or not, there's an explicit rejection of Jesus amongst many people. Or maybe there's an implicit rejection of Jesus. You may not reject the historicity or the meaning um, but you think that the only thing that really matters is his example of self-sacrifice or something like that. A moral principle. An implicit rejection of Jesus. Because that's not why he came. A few years ago, a number of years ago now, I think, um, I remember when I was a young Christian, there was a, there was a fashion to wear one of these rubber wristbands. I don't know if people still do it nowadays. You know, WWJD. Some, some of you know that. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And it's supposed to be an aid in living a godly life for Christians. And of course, it's, it is good to live a godly life. Uh, you expect growing holiness in the Christian life. But of course, it only leads to consideration of Jesus as a moral example. When you get into a situation, you think, well, what would Jesus do? I try and imagine Jesus in a similar situation, and I think, what would he do? And uh, maybe I could do that, or something similar. And that's good enough. 
that way of thinking, if that's all you're thinking about Jesus, is you forget that he came to die on a cross. And you can't do any of that. (laughs) Jesus came as a savior, uniquely to save sinners. So it's not a code of practice that you and I need. It's Jesus we need. He is the precious stone. He is the treasure. He is the foundation upon which everything is built. He is a capstone that holds everything together. So what do you make of Jesus this evening? You here in this room, what do you make of Jesus? That's the big question. Is he dispensable? What difference would it make if you just ignored the cross and the resurrection? Could I conduct my life without him? There are many who think that they can. But you can't. What do you make of Jesus? Well, finally, the final point is we need to submit to the righteousness of God. And that's found there uh, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 10. The need to submit to God's righteousness. Notice the heart that Paul has for his fellow uh, Jews. In verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. And there is a, a recognition of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the unbelief of the Jews generally in no way de- diminishes his heart's desire for them. He has not given up on them. He even recognizes their zeal. Verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But that only serves to increase the intensity of his desire for them to, to find the Savior. And in one sense, his fellow Jews are so near and yet so far. You know, a fingernail's distance from grabbing a ledge or something and you're falling down to the ground. That's, that's what it's like with the Jews. So close and yet they're not close enough to be saved. In relation to God, it's possible to have a zeal for God. And because you don't have knowledge, you have no justification and no salvation. There are many people who seem to love God, and yet they have no justification and no salvation because they have missed out Jesus Christ. The world and history are full of religious zeal, but without knowledge, it's all worthless. Knowledge about what then? What's Paul talking about here? Knowledge about the righteousness that comes from God. We've thought about this before. This righteousness of God. And I read some verses earlier on. But, this righteous, but now our righteousness from God is revealed. 3.21 What is this righteousness from God? Let me recap what we looked at before. What is this righteousness of God? We saw that it when we're looking at chapter 3, it could mean two possible things. Number one, it means the saving activity of God. God taking the initiative to save. And that's what 
Jesus was all about. The incarnation of the Son of God, his life, death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Uh, he was, did all of that to save a people for himself. And this is God's saving activity, sending his Son into the world. As we're looking at this morning, God's planning it from eternity past and agreeing with the Son that the Son should come as a man and come and suffer and then endure the cross. Then gloriously to win a victory over death and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and present his offering to his Father in heaven as a perpetual intercession for his people. And then the Holy Spirit coming down upon the church. This is God. This is God's saving activity. So that's one thing it could mean. This is all that God has done. Here's another thing that the righteousness of God means. It's that righteousness of God made over to us as a gift. Linguistically, that's the only other option that's possible. He makes a righteousness over to us that we don't have. And so it comes to us as a free gift. And it comes from Jesus himself, who was perfect and without sin. He was perfectly and is perfectly righteous. And it's through faith in him that we receive that righteousness from him. The Jews' problem was that they didn't submit to the righteousness of God. Instead, they wanted to establish their own righteousness. They wanted to lay their own foundation of righteousness rather than accept the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing thing for the believer, though. Christ brings an end of the law for the believer. What does he mean? He brings an end of the law. Christ brings an end for the law. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. It's not as some people think that um, Jesus fulfilled the law, he, he kept it perfectly, therefore it no longer has place today. That, that's a false conclusion. But what it does mean is that as a true, for the true believer, Christ puts an end to the need to seek justification and, and salvation through works. Getting righteousness is all about getting Jesus. And everything is found in him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Because of him, as God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. You see, Jesus becomes your righteousness. And it's an amazing thing that when somebody truly finds Jesus Christ, they really do find rest for their souls. No longer living with the uncertainty of whether they're good enough to be acceptable to God. Instead, it's as though they've come tr- truly come home and suddenly you find it. You know what it's like when you get home and you've been away for a while and you, you, know, you come home and you flop down on the, the sofa and you think, yeah, I'm, I'm at home, I'm at rest. And that's what it's like coming to Jesus. You find rest for your soul. You've come home. And there's a wonder about what you've seen and what you've found when you've come to Jesus. And it's a treasure that fills your soul with joy. 
that righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So have you found Jesus Christ this evening? Do you know him? Are you resting in him? Are you resting in his righteousness? Or is he still a stumbling block for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. It never ceases to amaze us all that you have done for us. And uh, all the picture language, the breadcrumbs that are scattered throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus Christ, that he is the the stone of Zion. And yet for some he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But for many he is the stone of salvation. May we all in this room know Jesus Christ and have received him and trusted in him. For Jesus' sake. Amen.